invite you to have a seat. Again, my name is Josh McLean. I'm one of the pastors here, and I do want to just take a moment and give you a heartfelt welcome. It's, it's, it's glad to be here. Uh, it's good to be here and not by myself, um, and uh, actually to have somebody to preach to and to share uh, what the Lord has laid on my heart uh, this week. So if you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn to the book of Acts. We'll be at the very end of it, Acts chapter 28. Um, as you know, we're governed this year by our reading plan, and so we encourage our, our members and our attenders in the reading plan. If you're curious what I mean by that, we're reading through the Bible, we're coming to a close, um, but those, uh, those passages are outlined in the loop, and so if you've got a copy of the loop, you want to keep that with you, leave it in your Bible, and it'll help you stay uh, up to date and where we're at. And you can always uh, know that in 2019, that the sermon that will be brought will be brought from that reading plan. And so we're at the end of the book of Acts. The book of Acts has been called a lot of different things. It's had a lot of different subtitles. It's been called the, the Acts of the Apostles. It's been called the Acts of the Holy Spirit. It's been called the History of the Church. And it is, in, a, in many ways, all of those things. There at the end, one of the main players is given most of the attention. And, and that main player is the Holy Spirit. And second to him is the Apostle Paul himself. So Paul has this sense that God is calling him to go back to Jerusalem there towards the end of the book. And he goes, as he goes back, he, decide, he, he desires to go back. He's stopped by some fellow believers who love him dearly. And they say, Paul, don't go back to Jerusalem. If you go back, they will kill you. They'll capture you. Politically, religiously, it's like the climate is just volatile. Please don't go back. And Paul says, it's time. The Lord, Lord has called me to go back. And so he goes. And sure enough, while he's there... He's accused of some things that didn't take place. He's arrested. And the Jews there are demanding his life. They're demanding that he die. He's actually rescued by the Romans. They, they're on probably likely on the north side of the Temple Mount. He's rescued and he's taken there to the steps of the Antonio Fortress. And, and while he's there, he, he's given an opportunity to address the Jews who are attacking him and trying to, to, to destroy his life and, and snuff out his message. A message that is much greater than him, by the way. They try to stop him there, and he's able to speak to them. And that night, many of the Jews, they make a pact that they will not sleep, they will not eat until Paul is dead. Word gets back to Paul and while he's there in the fortress. He gives that information to the captain of the guard, and the captain of the guard decides that as he makes the trek to Caesarea Maritima, there toward the west, toward, uh, toward the sea, as he travels that way, that there'll be a detachment that's too great to be overthrown by uh, 30, 40 rebels. So Paul is safely transported to Caesarea Maritima. While he's there at that great city there on the, on, on the, on the ocean, at the sea, he spends quite a bit of time there, two years as a matter of fact. He's given the opportunity to, to speak to many people, and he's treated for the most part fairly, he actually has the opportunity to, to share the gospel, to share his good news that he's been given and entrusted to him with some high-level, very important people. As you, many of this, much of this is, is familiar to most of you as you've read this week. And then the, the decision is made that Paul will now go to Rome because he's appealed to Caesar to protect his life. He, he must go and see Caesar. Caesar would decide his case, and so he makes the dangerous trek. And on the way there, he's actually shipwrecked. Again, he's given the opportunity to share the gospel and just seeing the Spirit work sovereignly in the life of Paul. And he's in the right place at just the right time, able to speak to just the right person on a certain day at a specific time. Just a beautiful thing to witness. It's an exciting thing. 
Paul leaves Malta, the island where he's shipwrecked, and he makes it finally to Rome after some time. It was a, it was a dangerous, desperate winter. Finally, as he enters Rome, Paul hadn't been to Rome yet, but he had desired to go there. As he enters into Rome, his heart is lifted. He's excited because Paul, not necessarily under these circumstances, but Paul for a long time has desired to be in this great city. Just a moment ago, Pastor Tim read in Romans chapter 1, verses 13 and onward. He read more than that, but that's what I want to kind of reread and look at just for a moment. Romans chapter 1, 13, I'll read it to you. He says, I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far I have been prevented in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. But I'm under obligation both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Paul says, I've longed for a long time to make it to this city. He wrote there maybe 13, 10, 13 years before this Moment where he actually comes into the city. He said, I want to come there. And he says in another translation, it's worded this, if any way possible, if by any means, if I could come to Rome. Paul, no, no doubt in his mind, he was not thinking that he would come to Rome finally in chains and that his life would literally be on the line. And yet, by God's sovereignty, the Spirit's guiding, that is how he enters Rome. There are many Christians living in Rome, even Jewish Christians, and Paul hears about their testimony, and that's why he even wrote that book of, uh, to the Romans there. So he could be some type of an encouragement to them as he waits until the day that he can actually make it. No doubt he would have rather have come into Rome, not in chains, but with his friend Silas, perhaps Barnabas, or some other son in the faith or partner in ministry. And yet he comes in chains without his freedom. And even in those sad, under those sad circumstances, Paul walks into Rome excited, triumphant. He's, he's tired. He's been pressed, but he's not been crushed. And he's ready to preach the gospel just as he said he would do there in Rome, both to the Christians who are Jewish, to the Jews, and ultimately to the Gentiles. So with that uh, framework in mind, let's see what Paul does as he enters into the city of Rome, that great city. There in Acts chapter 28, we'll read verse 17 and onward to the end of the chapter. This is what the Bible says. After three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews. And when they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, though I had not done anything against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. And when they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and to speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. And they said to him, we've received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are for in regard to this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in great numbers. And from morning until evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing amongst themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. 
the Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, Go to this people and say, You will indeed hear but never understand, and you will indeed see but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and with their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand their heart and turn and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. He lived there two whole years and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. This is the reading of God's word. Would you pray with me? God, we ask that you would bless our time this morning as we look at it. As we look at your text, that we would be encouraged, those of us who are discouraged. Father, those of us that would be confused this morning, that we would receive clarity. God, those of us who are acting in pride, that we would be humbled. God, that those who have been crushed, that we would be lifted up. God, those that are hurting would be comforted as well. Jesus, we come to you this morning. Asking these things in your name. Spirit, we know that you will accomplish these things. You've promised that you would amongst your people. And so we come to you this morning with hope and certainty that, it will account, that you will accomplish all that you seek to do. We ask these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. So this morning, I want to give you uh, one main point that I'm drawing out of this text. And there's lots of ways that we could go. The Bible is saying quite a bit right here in this passage. But there's one aspect that I really want to lean into, and it's this. This is the main point of the entire sermon that that I'm going to bring to you this morning, that God has sovereignly placed you in this world at this time with the abilities and gifts you have to bring him glory and to share the joy of the gospel with others. And that's that's a mouthful. I actually took that, lifted that straight out of a book. The book is called Sharing Jesus Without Freaking Out. It's written by Alvin Reed. This is one of the points that he makes in the text in his book, and I just love it. I believe it fits in this text. I believe this text is saying the same thing, that God has sovereignly placed you in this world at this time with the abilities and gifts that you have to bring him glory and share the joy of the gospel with others. As we walk through the text this morning, if you like markers and signs along the way, I'm going to give you three uh, signs. The first is this, that, that we are to love the lost. We are to love the lost. This, this passage is calling us to that as we see the example of Paul, that we would love the lost as Paul does. We'll see that demonstrated through his life. Also, that we would spread the word. We have time as we talk about spreading the word. There'll be a time of practical instruction on how we as a people living today in Hagerstown in Washington County, 2019, how we can practically spread the word. We'll look at some of the things that Paul does. Finally, we will end our conversation this morning, our time together in the text, by trusting the Spirit. I'll issue a call that we truly would do, that that we would trust the Spirit of God, who is able to raise Jesus from the dead, who is able to raise you from the dead, if you are a saint this morning, if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, and also in faith that we would just trust that he would continue to do that work in and through us in this, among our neighbors, and ultimately to the nations. And so first, as we walk through this text, let's look at loving the lost. Look first at verse 17. It says, after three days. Paul has lived a difficult life. He's faced a lot of hardship. 
Several times it's mentioned, even alluded to directly in, in, the, in the books that he has written in the New Testament. We know that even recently he's, he's faced shipwrecked, ship, a shipwreck, bitten by a poisonous snake. How many of you guys know that even when you go on vacation and you come back from vacation, you're tired? Paul has been on an extended journey for some time through the winter and facing all type of persecution and hardship and never having that moment where he can just rest and let his hair down, as, you, as it were. Many of you are upset now because I'm telling you that Paul had long hair. He did have long hair. No, I'm just kidding. Oh, wait, I don't know. But he never had the opportunity to really kick off his boots and to let his hair down as he's traveling under guard to Rome. As he enters, there are some there in Rome that are pleased to see Paul, but not a whole lot. Many are frustrated with him. Paul had longed to come to Jerusalem, and now he's there. And as he is there, he doesn't waste any time. He's exhausted. He could have used a break, and yet he jumps in, right? And he calls a meeting with the Jews there. Paul had a specific love for the Jews. If you look at Romans chapter 9, if you're taking notes, you could write this down. Paul says, speaking the truth in Christ, I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. He's speaking to the Jews, the Christian Jews there in Rome. He says, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from, the, from Christ for the sake of my brothers. He's not speaking of Christian brothers. He's speaking of his Jewish brothers. My kinsmen according to the flesh. He said, they are Israelites and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship and the promises to them belong the patriarchs. And, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed and forever. Amen. That's, he's referring to the kingdom. And he's saying, I wish that they could have what I have. I wish they could experience what I experience. And he says, I'm even, I'm even willing. I love them so much. I care for my kinsmen so much that I'd even be willing to be accursed if it would be able to, to bring them to faith. And of course, that's not a, a, a possibility And yet he conveys his heart in these words. They were his people. And he was of the house and tribe of Benjamin. And he was excited about that and very proud of that. And yet they didn't, that that love, that joy wasn't given back to him. There was no reciprocity there with Paul and that love that he had for the Jews. As a matter of fact, he says in in his statement there in chapter 28, he, he, he says that basically they have accused me. They wanted my head on a pike. They wanted me to die. But because the Jews objected, in verse 19, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I, had, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. So as he tries to defend himself, he doesn't go on the offensive. He tries to defend himself against the Jews, but not to attack the Jews. He even says, I have no charge against the nation of Israel. I have no charge against the Jews. So even those who hated Paul and wanted to see him dead, wanted to see his name and his line snuffed out, even those people Paul loved. In many ways, that's the most difficult for us, practically speaking, to love somebody. The ones who hate us. The ones who have wronged us. The ones who have sinned against us. It's often so difficult for us to love and care about them. But Paul did. Paul took a play out of the, out of the book of Jesus. To love those who hated him. To come to the aid of those who would reject him. The Bible says of Jesus that he came unto his own and his own received him not. This is the thing Paul is now able to say because of the actions of the Jews against him. So Paul loved the lost. And my question to you, as we consider that Paul did love the lost and Jesus loved the lost, my question for you is this, do you love the lost? 
When I say the lost, I'm, I'm speaking of those who are apart from Christ. Those whom the Bible says are dead in their sins. Who have not repented of their sin and thereby received forgiveness. Trusting in Jesus Christ. But those who are apart from Christ and even, are in, even now rebelling against him. Paul loved those people, do you? Paul even loved those people in that group who hated him. Do you? If you're in Christ this morning, that fire, for the, that zeal for the lost is not burning brightly. It's my desire that, that the Holy Spirit this morning would re, re, reignite that flame. That it would burn bright this morning. That as you leave this place, just all the cards on the table, that as you leave this place this morning, that you truly would be considering and thinking of those who are lost in your life. That your heart would be broken for them and that you would maybe even lose sleep. That you would change the way, the paths that you walk and the things that you do on a regular and daily basis in an effort to win the lost as Paul did. You see, Paul loved the lost. Many of you might think this morning, you say, I love the lost, but I've not, I don't do much. That's not my calling. That's not what God has gifted me to do. Maybe that's not my personality type. You might say, I'm, I'm not an extrovert. Well, being an extrovert is not essential to evangelism, but love and obedience are. Obedience to God. He has called us to do this. He's also said that it's a sign. If we love the lost, if, if we obey and go after the lost, this is a sign of our salvation. That Jesus is working in our lives. One man said this. He said, a man will work harder to recover diamonds than gravel. I don't know how many of you, if you're like me, I walk around picking up rocks. I've done that all my life. I, I like rocks. They're interesting. I'm not a geologist or anything like that. But I do love rocks, but I tell you what, I, I, if I had a pocket full of rocks and I found a diamond, I'm telling you right now, if I had no other room, I would empty my pockets of the, di- of the rocks so that I could make room for the diamonds because even me, a rock collector, I still think diamonds are more valuable. But he goes on to say, why? Why do we do that? Because they are so much greater in value. And so with the souls of men, Christ conceived the human soul to be such transcendent value that he gladly exchanged the shining quartz of glory for a life of poverty, suffering shame and death rather than it should perish. And he plays the world in all, or he lays the world in all it could offer on one scale and he lays the human soul in the other and he declares that the scale went down on the side of the soul. There's nothing in this world that is worth a soul. Do you believe that? Does your life demonstrate that? that? The souls of men are of more value, the souls of women and children are of more value than anything else that you'll ever encounter, that you'll ever possess or ever be in the presence of, save Christ himself. It's been said that only two things in this world will last, the word of God and the souls of men. Souls of men are far more valuable than anything in this world. So if we love the lost, we will reach them. We will go to them as Paul did. He's tired. He's weary. He's he's had a lot on his plate. Definitely, if you experienced some of the things that he had recently experienced, you'd say, you know what? I'm I'm not going to reply to my emails for a few weeks. And I don't think anybody's going to be upset about that if I tell them what's happened. Nobody expects me to go to work today. I was just shipwrecked and bitten by a snake. I've been arrested. I can't even get to anybody's house. They'll understand. They'll let me off the hook. And that's not what Paul does. 
because of his love for the lost and his new opportunity to share with those who are in need, he, he, he steps into action. He demonstrates to us that weariness is not a good excuse. He also demonstrates that fear is not a good excuse. Oftentimes, one of the reasons why I will not, I'll be hindered from sharing my faith is for fear. Fear of rejection. What would they think of me? Perhaps you can relate. Maybe I'll lose my job. Maybe, maybe I'll lose some type of a relationship or esteem in the community. If I do this or if I do that, we're partially motivated by fear. And it's not wrong necessarily to be motivated by fear. It's not, right? But let's, let's be logical. Let's look at both sides. If we consider what can be lost by sharing the gospel, I will admit with you there are many things that can be lost by sharing the gospel. But if you look to the other side, what can be lost if we do not share the gospel? What can be lost if we do not share the gospel? If we do not share the good news that those around us are in so dire need of hearing. So out of fear and out of love, we share the gospel. Spurgeon had a way of making things very clear. He provides a sharp contrast and a hard line here, if you will, when he says that every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. Don't get mad at me. I didn't say it. I'm just telling you what he said. No, but it's something to think about. Every Christian is either a missionary or they are an imposter. And you might say, missionaries? When I was a child, I thought missionaries had to eat bugs and go to Africa or something like that. I recently read that the U.S. is the fifth largest mission field. It's the fifth greatest mission field in need. Think about that. The United States of America. So as you consider where you live, where God has sovereignly placed you, think about this. You're either a missionary there or you're an imposter. As Paul enters into Rome, his care for them would not just be empty words. It wouldn't just be a book saying, hey, one day I'd love to get there. If I could get there, I hope to get there one day. Well, he wrote that check and then God cashed it. Now he's there and he's tired and his words are followed up with actions and he spreads the word. And so this is the second signpost as we walk through. The first first one is calling you to love the lost. To love the lost. But that that love would not just be empty. It wouldn't just be a thoughtful thing. It wouldn't just be a Christmas card. That it would truly, that love would have action, that it would be backed up. So Paul, as he enters into a new city, really no matter where he goes, the first thing that he would do is, if they had a synagogue, he would go to that synagogue and he would go and preach the gospel to the Jews. That's what he would do. And there as he enters into Rome, he's unable to do that. He's detained. So he thinks outside the box. Again, he had every excuse, he had every opportunity to say, I can't do it, I can't do it, I can't do that. And yet he finds a way to still share the gospel with the Jewish leaders there in Rome. And so he calls them to himself. He could have given up, but he doesn't. So he directly asks for the opportunity to share with them. It's very direct. And they agreed to meet with them. They even set a date. They want to hear what he has to say, which is a a point for us all to realize we may think that for many in the, in our, that we would come in contact, that many in our sphere, that for them that they would be concerned, and, or I'm sorry, un- unconcerned, uninterested in what we have to share through the gospel. And yet this passage demonstrates to us that that is not true. The gospel is the most relevant piece of information that we will ever encounter or that we could ever hold or pass on. 
The Jews, they agree. They're in Rome. They agree. They want to hear what he has to say. I referenced a moment ago uh, Alvin Reed's book, Sharing Jesus Without Freaking Out, and he gives us some practical steps on how we, like Paul, could be proactive and share our faith with those around us. The first thing that he calls us to do, if you're taking notes, the first one is this. There's, I think there's five. is to focus your life on the gospel of Jesus. To focus your life on the gospel of Jesus. We see this in Paul. Every single book that he writes, he, he begins with something similar to this. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Or Paul, a servant of God. His very life, every aspect of his life was orientated toward Jesus Christ and the gospel that he has received. As you consider, is my life like Paul? Could I be the missionary that Paul is in my own context? Could I be as Paul? Well, if you, the first step, and Alvin points it out so, so wonderfully, is that a, a life marked with sharing the gospel begins with a daily devotional focus on Jesus Christ. It's a daily devotional focus on Jesus Christ. And I wonder as I think about what, 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 what stops us from being evangelistic. If I could just bear my heart to you. One of my, the biggest thing that concerns me right now is that I pastor a church that, and, 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 and myself, not evangelistic. I long for us to regularly celebrate the people turning from darkness to light. That's what we said so many times in the beginning when we even just prayed and thought about what it would look like to, to be a church in Hagerstown, that God would really rescue people through our ministry and through our speech and on our streets, that he would rescue people from darkness, from damnation. And as I consider, God, why, why is there not more? I'm haunted by this fact that the question, that a life is my life. Are the lives of the people in our church, are they truly focused on Jesus Christ? You know, each and every one of us are evangelists. And I'm chief among them, but not always for Christ. Sadly, whatever I like, whatever I've enjoyed recently, you're, you're probably going to hear about it. Whatever I think is working, whether it be some type of a shoe or some type of a product or a food or a new restaurant, whatever it is, I'm going to tell you about it because I think it's made an impact in my life. I'm focused on those things, and so I share, and you're like me, I'm sure. Whatever you've found, whatever secret restaurant or new recipe, whatever it is, we share those with, with people that we're excited about. We always are providing recommendations for podcasts and new products. These things add value to, our, to my life, and they'll add value to your life as well. So the question then for you is, do you see value in Christ as you do these other products, as you do these other habits? Do you see value in Christ? Paul did, and he, he focused his life on the work of Jesus Christ. In his own life, is that fire that, he, that was in his heart, he kindled it, and, and as it, came, and it became a blaze, it led him on to evangelism. One, one theologian said this, evangelism is expressing what I possess in Christ and explaining how I came to possess it. Isn't that the same thing about shoes or food or whatever? It's like, this is changing my life. And this is where I got it at. This is what we do. He goes on to say, in the truest sense, evangelism is dis displaying the universals of God's character, his love, his righteousness, his justice, and his faithfulness through the particulars of my everyday life. You're a traveling salesman unintentionally. 
So it's a focus. Number one, if we want to spread the word as Paul did, we must be like him and have a focus on Jesus Christ. And not a bolt-on, not an add-on, but the centerpiece of our lives. If you have influence over others, siblings, family members, neighbors, co-workers, employees, may they not look into your life this week and even see that your life is marked with the gospel of Jesus Christ. That a light burns in your heart and sheds abroad in their, in their, onto their lives. And so first, he calls us to focus our life on the gospel of Jesus. Another thing that he, just practical step that he calls us to is to recognize where you are uniquely gifted and strategically placed. To recognize where you are uniquely gifted and strategically placed. It's obvious as we look at the life of Paul, especially even in this chapter, to see his unique gifts and geographical placement as a win for the gospel. Isn't it? It's, easy. it's obvious. What does he do? He goes straight for the Jews. Well, they're going to listen to Paul. They want, they want to hear what he has to say. There's a buzz around Paul in the, in the Roman kingdom. And so as they, they hear Paul's coming to town, they're excited. We, I want to talk to this cat. I don't, I don't agree with him, but I want to hear what he has to say. He, he, he had uniquely was educated in a manner that they appreciated. He uniquely had grown up in their same faith, and yet he had stepped aside from it. He was zealous among, above all, and they wanted to hear, what, what converted you, Paul? What was it? They were, they were interested in him. His unique giftings and strategical placement God used. And he said, well, I can't be Paul. I don't have his gifting, I don't have his education, I don't have his background, I don't have his placement. Of course, that's true. That's not the point. The point is that you have unique giftings and placement as well. So assess your own life, even now this morning. This is serious. Maybe if you have a pen, pull it out. What is it about you that is unique? When I say unique, I don't mean like different than everybody else, but who are you? And how has God determined, how can you see in your life that God has determined to use you in his sovereignty for the sake of the gospel here in in your context? What context? Right here, where you live. How, How is God desiring to use you? Maybe it's your hobbies. Maybe it's your talents. Maybe it's your spiritual gifting, or maybe you just, you're, you're bent in a certain way, and maybe you find yourself at a ball field day in, day out, and this is your strategic location, and, and you begin to realize, God, you've, you've placed me here for a reason. The street that I live on, the very neighbors that you've given me, the people that showed up and started living in my home over the years, these people, God has strategically and uniquely gifted you to reach. So begin considering, even right now, what is it that God is you? For Paul, it was obvious. Maybe it's not so obvious for you. And this is where community is so vital. As we, as we desire to be evangelistic, where has God uniquely gifted you and, and, and placed you? Well, ask those around you. Ask those in your life group. Ask those in your D group. Ask one of your pastors. Where, where, where do you see that God has gifted me or placed me strategically that I could share the gospel? This is so important. Really, it flows into the point number three. This is just practical stuff. Point number three, identify in your circles of influence people you already know who don't know Christ. That's easy. Identify in your circles of influence people you already know who don't know Christ. And so as you think, where, where do my hobbies and skills and recreation overlap with lost people? With those who, and when I say lost people, it's not those people. But it's the people that we love 
It's the people that Christ has called us to go and share the gospel with. So who, who do we know in our family, in the house to your left, not just your neighborhood, but think the house to your left, the apartment to your left, the, the house or apartment to your right, across the way, what are their names? What is their eternal destiny? The friends you hang out with, the coworkers with whom you chat at the water cooler, or the equivalent of. These people that need the hope of Christ, that even long for it, that God has called us to share with. Who, who are they? What are their names? Again, let's get practical. Even right now, take a moment. Open the leaf of your Bible in your somewhere. Write this down. What are the names that God's putting on your heart right now? You say, well, there's no, there's no name being placed on my heart. Well, why don't you ask God? Even now, ask him, God, who is it that you have sovereignly, strategically placed me to share the God in proximity to so that I can share the gospel with him? Ask him. For, for Paul, it was so easy. It just came natural to him. Maybe not to you and maybe not to me. Either way, we're called to do it. But think of Paul. There he is in Rome. He's in his own house, a house that he's rented, and he's under constant surveillance, both, surveillance, both to, for his protection and to make sure that he stays in custody of Rome. And so he's there every day, and Paul can just look on the, on the calendar there, post on the refrigerator that says, Monday, Brutus will be his guard. Oh, Brutus, he's already converted to the faith. I mean, he's really growing nicely in his, in, in his walk with Christ. It's a beautiful thing. Uh, who's on there Tuesday? Oh, it's Giuliano. So yeah, he's, yeah, he's, a tough, he's a tough case, but I'll really look forward to our conversation about the validity of the Old Testament scriptures. That's going to be a great conversation. I'm going to be praying about that. And then he looks and he's like, this, who's this cat on Wednesday? Fred. I've never heard of Fred before. But Fred's going to be the guard that's going to be with me. And so Paul says his certain day, his day to hear the gospel from me will be this Wednesday because whenever he comes into my house to guard me, no matter how tough he is, no matter how much cotton he's got stuffed in his ears, he's going to hear the gospel. And Paul writes it on his top five. Paul writes it on his, who's your one? He says, I'm going to reach Fred with the gospel of Jesus Christ this Wednesday. I'm going to share it with him. This, Paul's getting a plan here, right? I made some of that up, right? We don't know if Fred's not much of a biblical name, but. But yet we know that Paul was intentional. And we have to be intentional as well. So even now, practically speaking, who is it that God is calling you to reach with the gospel of Jesus Christ? Who? Paul spoke in generalities. He, he wanted to reach the Jews in Rome. And he went after it. Maybe you can reach a, a large group like that here. Maybe you can't. Maybe you need a smaller group. I would encourage that. But who's God calling you? Who's God sovereignly placed you in proximity to that so that you can share the gospel? Write it down. And really just flowing out of that, step number four is this. Regularly discuss your plan to share the gospel with a partner or mentor. Regularly discuss your plan to share the gospel with a partner or a mentor. This is something that our D group's been doing for a while, and we don't do it as consistent as I would like. I guess that falls on me. But we regularly talk about who is it that God has placed and in our lives to share the gospel. Oftentimes it's a neighbor or a coworker. Oftentimes it's a family member. It's so helpful to be held accountable. The things that we share, the goals that we set, that we tell others about, we're so much more exponentially likely to meet those goals when we actually share them with other people. Maybe you decided to learn French this year. 
or to play the piano or whatever it is, and you didn't tell anybody about it, and therefore that slowly died. My goal was to play the piano for like five minutes every day in 2019, and I fell off the wagon. We had some babies, so shoot me, right? But those who did know that that was my goal would regularly come to me and say, hey, how's it going? And I would think, when I'm not playing the piano, I really wish I hadn't told that person that because, I'm just kidding. But seriously, when we have that accountability in our lives, we've told this is my plan, this is what I believe God has called me to do, to share the gospel with this person. And we say, we say God has called me to share the gospel with Fred. And we tell that to our D group, and they are able then to hold us accountable. Hey, Josh, you told us that, that God was going to use you, to, that you were going to faithfully proclaim the gospel to Fred this week. Did you do it? How did it go? So if you're a D group leader, pick this up, take this with you. Ask, ask your guys this week to consider this question. They, if they're in this sermon, they, should have already have, they already have a name ready. Because we're practically looking for ways that we can achieve this mission that God has called us to. And number five, and it's most important, as we consider spreading the word is to pray for your witness and for those, uh, <clears throat> pray uh, for your witness and for those to whom you will witness. And what are we praying for there? This is vitally important. It's key as we share the gospel. What are we praying for? We'll pray for a couple things. If you want to write these down, these are helpful as well. Pray that God would open their hearts to believe the gospel. Pray that God would open their hearts to believe the gospel. This morning, if you're here this morning and you are not a Christian, I want you to know that you have been prayed for this morning. We gathered this morning to pray for those who would be sitting in these seats, likely even your seat. Somebody sat and prayed that whoever sat in that seat, that they would come to faith in Christ, that, they would, that God would open your heart and that you would believe the gospel, which is the good news that rescues you from your sin and from damnation that is already upon you. We find a call to do that in Acts chapter 16, verse 14. Another way that we can pray is that God would free them from the slavery of their sin. That God would free them, those with whom we will witness, from the slavery of their sin. Romans chapter 6, verse 17. So oftentimes when we share the gospel with somebody, they sense the slavery, they sense the bondage that they are in, and they're tired of it. And they reject it, and they want free, but they're unable to. And so we pray that God would, under his divine power, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, that would rescue them from their sin. Chapter 6, verse 17. Another way that we can pray is that God would grant them repentance, similar and related. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 25 and 26, that God would grant them repentance. Repentance is not a, a human work. It's a divine work in the life of an of a, of a human, of an of a unbeliever, that God grants them repentance. Another way that we can pray is that God would remove Satan's blinding influence. These are practical ways as you pray for your neighbor to the left, your neighbor to the right, your seatmate or whoever it is, office mate, whatever it is, that God would remove Satan's blinding influence and where they think they're free, they would see that it's bondage. Where they think they have joy, they would recognize that it is slavery. Another way that we can pray, turning the tables, turning the, the direction of the prayers that God would develop with you, a relationship with them. That God would give you a, a, a deep relationship with them. This is found in Romans chapter 10, verse 24. That God would give you a deep relationship. Oftentimes, folks come to faith because they were given a track. Or because they were just, somebody preached on the street. These are things that are faithful gospel witnesses. But so often, 
Those who come to faith in Christ come to faith in Christ through a deep connection and relationship that they had that maybe was even ongoing, more than just a five-minute conversation. And not that those conversations are not important because they are. And we're called to do those as well. But asking God f- to give you a deep relationship with those whom you would share the gospel with. Related to that is to pray that God would give you opportunities to minister to them. That God would give you opportunities to minister to them. Matthew chapter 5, verse 16. It's often it's hard to hear the gospel when you're hungry and when you're cold and when you're in need. And yet that need being met is even a demonstration, active demonstration of the gospel. How neat it is, as Sarah and I have lived on our street for just a few months, 10 months now. As, we, as we've lived there, we've been able to, to meet the neighbors, and it's really unique to see that God's been answering these prayer requests. He would give us opportunities to minister to them in a way that we didn't even think, we never, was never even on our radar. Late night, early morning, ambulance showing up able to minister there and to be able to share the gospel. Other times, troubles with raising children, struggles and just being able to be in a, a listening ear, maybe struggling with even your own personality, your own, your own identity and who you are as a human being, being able to speak the gospel into those opportunities as well. That God would, you would pray that God would give you those and that he would give me more opportunities to minister to those who are in need around us. One more practical way that we can pray for the lost is that we would pray for boldness in generating and taking opportunities to speak the gospel. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 19, and also the last verse there in the book of Acts. We would have the same testimony. We would have the same testimony that Paul, that we would be able to boldly preach the gospel with unhindered. This is my prayer as I consider our church this morning, that God would give us this, these requests. If you long to be evangelistic, you long for that. But we, we have to make a plan. We have, to, we have to step forward and say, this is what we're going to do. We're not just going to pray for some nebulous state to be realized, but that we would actually start walking toward it in faith. And this isn't a Bible verse, but I think it's true. If we fail to plan, then we plan to fail and if we plan to fail if we fail there is much at stake the very souls of men that God has called us to share the gospel with so we must plan to share the gospel as you consider taking action I want to give you this and we, as we transition into the final point a road sign I want to just give you this quote again by Charles Spurgeon it's so powerful So vivid. This is what he says. If sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped about their knees, imploring them to stay. And if hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions and not one go unwarned or unprayed for. If those around you, if those in your circle will be damned to hell, then let them go in the teeth of your exertions. And let them go pleading as your arms are around their knees in the opposite, pleading them to stay. And turn from their sin and, and trust Christ. 
So we are to love the lost and we are to preach or spread the, the word. Finally, and we see it here in this passage again, we are to trust the Spirit. I'm so glad that the book of Acts is not a book about people like Paul. Aside and, us, and apart from the, from the Spirit of God. Because if it was that, I, I, I would feel lost. I would feel helpless. I would feel unable to do anything and to ever see any fruit in my own life as it relates to gospel evangelism. But the book is not a book about Paul and how awesome he is. The book is a book about the Spirit of God and how he works among his people and he works in his creation and he creates a church and they go and, like Paul, preach the word. So ultimately, finally, as we look at this passage this morning, there's a call for us to trust the Spirit of God. We see it. Look at verse 24. As Paul preaches there to the Jews there in Rome, he says, Some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. Some were convinced, others disbelieved. Earlier on in the book of Acts, it says, in, verse, in chapter 14, verse 4, it says, But the multitude of the city was divided, and some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. So some listened, some didn't listen there. Chapter 17, it says something similar. Chapter 18, it says, uh, and when they resisted and blasphemed, he shook out his garments. This is Paul. He shook out his garments. He said, blood, your blood be upon your own heads, for I am clean, for I shall now go to the Gentiles. And he departed from there, and he went to the house of a certain man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God, whose house was next to the synagogue. And Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord with all his household. And many of the Corinthians, when they heard, were believing and being baptized. This is the work of the Spirit of God. Some repent and trust and believe, and some reject and deny. Chapter 19, it says, When he entered the synagogue and continued speaking out boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God, but when some were become hardened and disobedient, speaking evil of the way before the multitude, he withdrew from them and he took away to the disciples reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannius. You see, there's always been a, re, a believing group. The Bible calls it a remnant most of the Jewish people, they rejected the Messiah, but some did not. But some did not. I think it's interesting as we look at the way that the book of Acts played out. We look at the beginning and we see at the end of Jesus' time here on earth, what does he say to his disciples? He gives them the great commission that they're to go and to preach the gospel. He says, go into all the world and preach the gospel. And then he says, when you preach the gospel, as a result, you're going to baptize some. You're going you're gonna to disciple some. It's going to be great. And so when you think of Jesus' statement, his, his call there, we find it at the end of the gospels in the beginning of, of the book of Acts. We realize that it's really, it's prophetic. It's not just a command. Jesus is actually prophesying what's going to take place. Think about that aspect. He's saying, you will. Even here, Paul says to the Jews, he says, they've rejected Jesus. He says, I'm now going to the Gentiles. This is there in, in, this, in the section we just read. I'm now going to the Gentiles. They will listen. Where did Paul get that information? How does he know the Gentiles will listen? Because Jesus said they would. No, not all. Of course not. And that's not been our experience either. But Paul said, I know because of the Lord Jesus Christ, what he has said to me, that many will listen. So in faith, he trusts the Spirit, calling and drawing. So as we consider Jesus' statement, recognize this, that there's a geographical nature to his statement, that they're to go, that the ends of the earth will receive the gospel. 
And there's also a prophetic that they will actually receive it. Some will actually receive. Look at Acts 17, verse 26. If you're taking notes, write it down. Acts 17, 26. Paul says this, And he made, he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having de- determined allotted periods and the boundary of their dwelling place. He's speaking generally of cultures and peoples, people groups, that God has ordained exactly the boundaries and, and where this nation and this tribe and, and these different people groups will live. But it doesn't just end there with different tribes or, 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 or villages. This point that God sovereignly determines our geographical location applies to each and every one of us on every level of our lives. The very job that you work, you might feel trapped there. You're not trapped. You're sovereignly placed there. Your relationship uh, in relationship to the city, city center, all of these things, they're all sovereignly determined by God. Paul's saying, listen, I'm arrested in Rome. Who wants to go as a tourist to Rome in a prison cell? Nobody does, right? And yet Paul is saying in God's sovereignty, I know that you have determined that I come here. And in some sense, this is the end of the world. The, not the end of the world, the edge of the world. In other perspectives, it's the it's, it's the very center of the world. But Paul knew that if he could get there, right? That it would go to the ends of the world. And so he recognizes the sovereignty of God in his geographical location. We love this verse in Esther chapter 4, verse 14. It says, If you keep silent at this time, relief and, and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. Uncle says to, the, to his beautiful niece, And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. You've come to this place at this time sovereignly. God's determined this. And now do what God has raised you up to do. So wherever you find yourself, you say, well, it's not pleasant. Paul knows how you feel. I'm I'm tired of this. I'm weary. I've grown, I've I've grown, I'm, I'm, I'm over it. Paul says, God has sovereignly placed you there in this geographical location to preach. You say, well, I'm tired of of, of Hagerstown. So it's a a no-name town, right? I just spent some time uh, on the eastern shore mingling with pastors from all over our state. Many of them saying this well-known state or this this well-known city or this well-known county. And I'm like, hey, I'm from Hagerstown, Maryland. And by the way, I doubt any of you are more proud to be from Hagerstown than me. I love it. But even then in that moment, I'm like, Hager, have you heard of Hagerstown? But I don't care. God has sovereignly placed me here. I love this place. Even though we don't have as much crab as I would like. like I love this place. And God has placed me here and he's placed you here. And you say, well, I think God's calling me to go to Florida. Amen. But while you're here, will you not recognize that God sovereignly has placed you here with your neighbor to the left, to the right, and across the way? So there's this geographical nature to Jesus' command, to his prophecy. That wherever, he go, wherever you go, you're going to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And he also has this victorious nature. We see it here. They will listen. Now, many won't, but many will. It's not your job to convert. It's, it's our job to convey. And the Spirit of God, we trust the Spirit of God that he will work. When we faithfully share the gospel... We're not winning them to our team or our side, but we're saying this is the truth of God, the good news in your life. That Jesus died on the cross to rescue you from your sins. We're in hope, believing that God will give them repentance, that God will give them the faith that they need to believe in this. 
that their hearts will be changed. I love this passage here. We already referenced Acts 18, but on down in verse 8, it says, And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And, and the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, maybe Paul's getting ready to leave and he's thinking, my work here is done. I've preached to the, to the gospel to the lost and some have repented and trusted Christ and now they're Christians and I've taught even, even then. But then the Lord comes in verse 9 and he says, don't be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent for I am with you. What a promise. Whew. That Jesus himself is with us when we share the gospel. And he says, no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. God has many in that city. Jesus is saying, hey, don't stop speaking. Don't be silent. You will be victorious in this geographical location. Jim Peterson said, when we bring someone to a decision to trust Christ in the course of a conversation or two, you can be sure of one thing. Considerable preparation and laboring has already occurred in that life before we arrive on the scene. So I've got to do this. I've, I've, I've got to be prepared. I've got to, and you should. And when you make that appointment this week to speak with your neighbor across the way and you've prepared yourself in prayer, you should prepare yourself in study. And yet at the same time recognize this, in faith, trusting the Spirit of God has gone before you and has prepared the hearts of those who will receive him. This is a fact. So Jesus declares our victory and he says, they will listen. You will baptize Hagerstown Church. We will see souls saved as a result of our faithful proclamation of the gospel. The Gentiles will listen, the Jews will listen. Listen, the question is, will you speak? question is, will you speak? If you're like me, the book of Acts, it ends abruptly and that's unsettling. Boom, it's over. What? Does Paul die in Rome? What happens? I remember reading the book of Acts for the first time and not knowing what happened to Paul. That's ridiculous. I wanted to, what? Do you remember the first time that you saw these dreaded words, to be continued? You already sensed it was coming. There you are as a child on the floor. Parents are on the couch. You're on the floor. You're close to the TV so you can change the channel and all that stuff. And as you're staring at the TV, you, get the, you, don't, you, you can't put it into words, but you're like, there is too much conflict in this story to be resolved in the hour. We've got seven minutes and somebody's about to die. This guy's lost and, and Lassie can't find his way to what? You're like, what's going to happen? And you're thinking, wait a minute. They're not going to be able to resolve this by the end of this hour. What's going to happen? I won't hear the rest of the story. And then the words that you already knew that were going to come, they come on the screen and it says to be continued. Right? And nowadays we can just binge watch and we can watch all this stuff, everything, every single cliffhanger can be resolved and like, yes, skip to the next episode, right? Because we just watched 15 hours straight of whatever it is you, you, you prefer on Netflix. Back in the day, that wasn't a possibility, right? What? i got to be here next week at this time? Right? You remember those days. That's kind of how the book of Acts ends. It says to be continued. And yet here's the cool part about the book of Acts. Even though it does, in a sense, say to be continued, we are the continuation of this story. 
This is our heritage. This is the beginning. This is episode one. This is the pilot, if you will. And we are a continuation of the, of the acts of the Holy Spirit in and amongst his people and through his creation, redeeming those who are lost back to him and bringing glory thereby to himself. So we are part two. We are the next episode. John MacArthur says this. He says, what is God's plan to deal with this dark and decaying world? By the way, the one that we live in and we see and we read of in the newspaper. He says, his plan is awesome. It's us. There's no one else. It isn't going to be given to anyone else. It doesn't belong to famous evangelists. They'll never touch people in your touch. They'll never touch people in your area. He goes on to say, it doesn't belong to great preachers or people on the radio or television or people who write books. It belongs to all of us. This is God's divine plan. So as we close this morning, I want to call you to this main point that to realize this, that God has sovereignly placed you in this world at this time with the abilities and the gifts that you have to bring him glory and to share the joy of the gospel with others. In a moment, we'll say this to you. Hagerstown Church, you are sent to go and accomplish this mission. Love the lost, spread the word, and trust the spirit of God. Would you pray with me? Father, we do come to you even now as we consider what you've shown us through your text this morning. You've called us to love the lost. You've called us to spread the word and ultimately to trust that you are working in the midst of all of this. God, even this morning, you may be working in somebody's heart. And we pray that no, no matter what situation they are coming from or find themselves in presently, they would see this invitation to receive forgiveness from their sins, the joy of salvation as they're reunited with their creator. God, that there's somebody here that needs to repent of their sins and place their faith in Jesus. God, would you give them that? Would you grant it? Perhaps it's somebody who has for a long time paraded around and even believed themselves to be a believer. You didn't thought themselves to be a saint, God, that you would give them the confidence and the courage to share boldly that you have worked in their life and that you've drawn them from darkness to light. From... God, we pray that this morning, if there's somebody here that has never even heard the gospel, that this morning that you would quicken their hearts, that you'd make them alive, and that they too would trust Christ for forgiveness of their sins. And they would speak to their friend they would speak to one of the pastors or one of the members here at Hagerstown Church. God, that you would give us a boldness and a confidence as we considered our own unique giftings and location. We'd write these things down. God, that you would give us names. You'd help us to, to think about who you'd have us to share the gospel with even this week, even today. We wouldn't use fear or or exhaustion as excuses, but God, that we would confidently and boldly go forth unhindered. God, we pray that you'd free those who are in our midst from slavery of sin to, to sin, that you'd grant us repentance and repentance to those who we pray for. God, that you would remove Satan's blinding influence over their, over their lives, and that you would give us a unique relationship with those who we pray for, and a unique opportunity to minister to them, God, as we do, that we would have boldness. We would take these opportunities regularly as you present them to speak the gospel into their lives. God, we pray and we trust, Spirit, that they 
will listen. And you will call those from darkness to light, from death unto light. And we uh, ask these things in the name of Jesus and for his glory. Amen.